Hey, this is the coach, Brendan Sir, with another Coaching You podcast. Really excited today to have Richard Patino as our guest, the head coach at the University of Minnesota, who's off to a phenomenal 7-0 start. I think you're going to learn from Richard today uh, what it's like to be the son of a Hall of Famer, Rick Pitino, uh, what it's like to be able to gain that coaching insight, having a dad that is a, a really good friend of mine and someone that I grew up with basketball-wise, uh, that's really one of the great, great coaches. And to watch Richard at 35 years of age, already five years coaching the Big Ten Conference uh, and the last year's Big Ten Coach of the Year of how he's developing and how he has really, I think, one of the special teams in the country. I think you're really going to enjoy. Let's have a good listen to Richard Pitino. Fast Model Sports is the world's most versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, FastDraw. FastDraw bridges the gap between whiteboarding and the digital world with an incredibly easy-to-use interface that can be used on both your computer and your iPad, providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. doesn't stop there. Along with FastDraw, they have other great programs such as FastScout, which I have used, which helps coaches create clean professional sky reports customized for your team. FastModel is trusted and used by every NBA team and WNBA team and 85% of Division I college teams and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills for their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Hey, let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high-tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market today. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high-repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and to provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind of basketball shooting industry that enables coaches and players to stay connected, design and upload training exercises that combine shooting, conditioning, and ball handling into one complete workout, and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real-time adjustments and improved performance. It is without question the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. It's been the official shooting machine of coaching you for the last two years. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to drdishbasketball.com or follow them on Twitter at drdishbball. Hey, welcome back to a Coaching You podcast with the coach Brendan Sir and our fabulous guest today, Richard Patino. Richard, thank you and welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, you know, it's funny. We've known each other for so long. And uh, the thing that I'm absolutely uh, thrilled about is to watch your path, your, your, you know, as all coaches, you know, when we start out and watch the way you've grown and everything. But 
you know, we have so many coaches that listen, men and women coaches around the world that listen to our podcast. And one of the things that I, I think is always interesting is what's the biggest difference from you becoming from an assistant to a head coach? Oh, you know, it's amazing. I, I tell Billy Donovan all the time. I say, I say sorry, first and foremost, um, for being such an awful assistant coach. Um, and it's just amazing. Ron Everhart, who I worked for mm-hmm. at Duquesne, always had a great line, and I never understood it at the time, but he said, assistant coaches don't know what they don't know. And it's so true, and it's nobody's fault. Um, they just don't understand it until they become a head coach. doesn't mean that head coaches are better than assistants. It's just you don't understand until you're in that chair just the amount of things that are thrown on your plate. And it's exhausting. And assistant coaches need to understand that they need to work their butts off first and foremost. They need to be prepared. They need to be loyal. They need to be team players. But whatever they give their boss, they need to understand what the head coach is thinking. You know, like, so if, if we're preparing for a game, they need to understand what my mindset is. I'm, I need to know what how they're going to guard ball screens. I need to know they're underneath out of bounds defense. I need to know, uh, do they play man? Do they play zone? Because it all, for me, it's all about how am I preparing for practice, et cetera. So it's very, very important for assistant coaches to know what their head coaches want to hear. Not tell them what they need to hear, but what's important to get them in the right frame of mind to continue to get better. One of the uh, biggest problems, let's say, at the collegiate level, uh, as you know, we talked about earlier this year was the amount of tasks that you're asked to perform at the college level in coaching that let's say you're not having to do uh, at the high school level, obviously, uh, or at the professional level. And uh, obviously, you know, we, none of us went to college, you know, you went to a better school than I did, but none of us went to, (laughs) went to college and said, okay, here's how we're going to teach kids to go to class and stuff like that. Here's how we're going to monitor discipline. Here's how we're going to uh, recruit. And there was no course in recruiting, uh, you know, and all these things. Oh, yeah. And we all got into this business just to co- just to coach, just to coach. And sometimes that's the last thing we get to do as assistants. How do you work uh, with your guys and and one of the big things you and I have talked about is there's not a lot of time to develop this because of all the things that you have to do. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I, I don't know if I'm real good at it, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I think that my strengths as a head coach are, I think I really relate well to my players. Um, I think that I'd like to think I'm a pretty good recruiter. I think I'm a very good communicator with the guys, but I do tend to get overwhelmed with a lot of the other things that I just don't want to deal with. And so in order to be a head coach, I think that you've got to look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, what are you good at? And then what are you not good at? And then you need to hire guys who can help you do things that you're not great at. And it's so often as a head coach, when you get a job, you say, okay, I need a guy who can deliver me players. Mm -hmm. Well, it's that re- if you're going to do things the right way, which we pride ourselves in doing, sure. there's no deliveries. You, you just got to you've got to evaluate the player. 
So you've got to see what, you know, do they fit the way you want to play? Can they get better? You've got to evaluate the situation. You know what I mean? If you're mm-hmm. going to dive headfirst into something, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're not wasting time on what guys want. Um, you know, so that's another thing. But then, you know, you get thrown so many things on your plate. You've got to make sure that you can trust other guys to handle that so that you can keep your focus on the right things. Um, and so communication is the biggest thing. You know, I, I don't like to I don't like to have a lot of meetings. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a big meeting guy. And, you know, you gave me a really good point, uh, a really good piece of advice. Um, I remember we talked over the summer and, and I said, you know, I get a little bit frustrated with my staff as it pertains to preparing for practice and the offense. And you said to me, and it was a really good point. You said, you know what? If you're good at it, you do it. And uh, it's amazing. I, every day I plan it out. I do our offense and, and uh, I'm fine with that. And, and and I just continue to communicate with my staff on, okay, listen, guys, I'm going to lock in on this. I need you to focus on the other things. Something I really struggle with in practice is like, I'll be working on our offensive execution and I'm not even paying attention to the defense. So I'll mm-hmm. tell my staff, like, guys, you need to watch the defense right now. Sure. Do not even look at the offense or vice versa. If I'm looking at the defensive side of it, you guys need to make sure we're executing on that. So it's just communication more than anything. Well, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, players, uh, everyone, every kid at every college wants to be an NBA player. We've talked about that. And now, and and, we, and then, we'll, you know, when I tell the young people that, you know, 85 to 90% of the guys in the league, they're all role players. They like, yeah, but I'm not a role player. I'm a star, you know, but, you know, Draymond Green, who's one of the 10 best players in the league, is a role player. He's just exceptional at his role. Klay Thompson's a role player. He's a flat-out shooter and a hell of a defender. But, he, you know, but he's one of the best at what he does. And so it goes back to almost, you know, Belichick's thing of do your job. And so whatever that might be to convince and sell, whether it be the people. like every, And also when I do things, uh, meetings with coaching staff, I ask every guy. Every guy raises his hand and wants to be a coach. I raised my hand. I say, I want to be a great assistant, you know, because not everyone can be a head coach, you know. No doubt. You know, that's not a not – be a great assistant is a hell of a job, you know, and and, there's a, and, and we're looking for those kind of guys. But I think, no the, I think the idea of roles are, is a huge thing. But you're right. It comes through communication. You were blessed, and I say this because your dad and I are contemporaries. We grew up together since we were teenagers, uh, basketball-wise, and, you know, in camp. You had an incredible teacher role model every day at the dining room table. I know he's been a huge influence uh, over so many of us in the business, but especially yourself. What was it like growing up with your dad? As you a, know, I as, think... as a, Not as, as a dad. He was a great dad. But, I mean, as, as, a, as a basketball influence. You know, what I always marveled about, you know, I, I've grown up around great teams and great programs for a long time. Um, so if there's one thing about being Rick Pitino's son, I was always very, very aware of the culture of what was going on. I may not have any idea what the hell offense they're running mm-hmm. when he's at Kentucky versus LSU or anything like that. But as it pertained to the day-to-day operation of working your butt off. I mean, every day, you know, he's in early, he's staying late and holding people accountable. He was terrific at, um, holding every single player and creating an atmosphere that you're going to overachieve. You know, you are, it's amazing. See, people forget about 
my dad, the amount of success that he has had with not a lot of great players is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And he has turned some two-star players, three-star players into All-Americans. I mean, Russ Smith. And Mm -hmm. all he did was just push him every single day. And he did that with his players. He did that with his coaches. Um, and he did it in, in a certain way that just brought the best out of everybody. And that's why he went on to have 30 something assistant coaches, former players who went on to be head coaches. And he was committed to that. You know, see some, some coaches, mm-hmm. they don't concern themselves with the development of the people around them. Hey, you know, it could be like such and such, just get me players, such and such. You just be the player development guy and other guy on the staff, you be the scout coach. Well, that was not the way that he ran his program. Uh, every single person, player, et cetera, was an asset, and he was going to try to get the most out of them. So so more than being a great coach, that was always something that I marveled at. You know, also, uh, we know this, especially at the college level, is there's a lot of guys, at, when you're an assistant, if you show an interest of wanting to be a head coach or ask your boss to help you get a certain job when it opens – they got pissed off at you, and they're not. That that could be your kiss of death, where he seemed to take incredible uh, pride in trying to get those guys a job, and I think that is an absolute amazing thing to do because uh, he, you know, he was once an assistant, and so he realizes that. And I think the ones that, you know, you know, put their thinking cap back on and say, yeah, uh, you know, that's, that is my, it's like a parent wanting their child to grow up. I mean, and, and, and I marvel at what he's done. And I remember, you know, and Billy Donovan will tell you all the things about, you know, even when he was a grad assistant for him and, you know, and, and always coaching him up. And I think one of the other really great qualities of your dad and, and, you know, was that he got, whether it be players or coaches, to become better than they ever thought they could be themselves. <laughs> and that no is doubt. and that is the essence of what we're trying to do as coaches. Yeah, I think he he the commitment to getting the most out of everyone. And it didn't matter if it was his trainer, mm-hmm. strength coach, GA, video guy, when you worked for him, every little thing really really mattered. So the the culture part of what he was able to build um was really, really good. And it was all hands on deck. You know, everybody had to be ready to help everybody out. Everybody had to be ready to get the most out of everybody. Um, you know, so I, I've taken a lot of what he's done and try to incorporate into what we do every single day. Now you're, you're, um, you're one of the old veterans now in the big 10 in your fifth year at 35 years of age. Isn't that That's nuts. And, and, you know, and coming off being coach of the year and it's, it's a wonderful title and stuff, but I know you're more driven than ever to be successful. What drives you, you know, to want to keep going as it would be a player? Well, I think, in our profession, it's life is a lot better when you win. Um, so that's first and foremost. But I think more than anything, like I got a really good group of players. It's taken a while to build it. You know, it, it's um, it's taken a few years. And I know that we've got something that we could be really, really good. You know, and, and like we're sitting here right now um, with a good record and we've played well. But I just look at from top to bottom guys on my roster and I say, okay, we can get much, much better. Um, You know, so I think it's that daily 
quest um, just to, to, to get the most out of everybody, get most out of myself, you know, I mean, to continue to challenge myself to grow as a coach, as a person, um, you know, if there's things that the beauty of being a head coach, and I don't think assistants see this, you know, I always tell people, they say, what's the difference between a head coach and, a, and an assistant? Well, when I drive into work, I am constantly trying to find the problem and solve it. Assistant coaches aren't doing that. And it's not their fault. I don't. I just don't think they understand it. Um, so there's so many things that we can get better at. And, you know, because every game, even if you win or lose, there's a litany of mistakes that you, you've got to correct. Um, you know, so and I've seen some guys get a lot better and it's been exciting. I mean, we don't really have a lot of highly recruited kids on our roster like Jordan Murphy right now is averaging 22 and 12. Jordan was a three star player. Wow. He's just put in the time. We built a a great rapport. He trusts what we're trying to do. I mean, Nate Mason is a guy who's a fringe NBA player. And he's having really good success. So it excites me to make sure that we stay on him. You know, our team's success will benefit you in the end. So it, it's just a continuous circle of, of just constantly trying to better everybody. And, and there's so much joy in it and fulfillment when it does actually happen. So I, I, it's ironic the way it's happened. I caught your game at Providence. I caught, you know, some of the games this past weekend. At Barclays, but one of the things that has really blown me away because you know you watch a team practice, you or you you know visit with coaches, and they always you know tell you about how they're going to be, how they're going to practice, and the thing that uh, really impresses me, Richard, is that your team plays so hard, and to me that's the ultimate compliment you can give to a coach. Your team just plays; they leave it out there, and they play the right way. And there's so few teams that play the right way. And because I think your guys play to win, uh, how is that like your mantra? Is that where you're coming from every day? Well, it's it's funny, and we have not spoken before, but right. I write on the board uh, whenever I do my keys to the game, the last key that I always put is play the right way. Huh. And what's amazing is, you know, if you – as much as coaches don't ever want to fail and they don't ever want to lose, two years ago, we had a very, very difficult season. Right. And we won eight games. Well, Nate Mason was in the lineup, Jordan Murphy, Dupree McBrayer. Three of those guys were starters. My bench guys are Bakari Kanate, Gaston Diage. So you had five guys who went through a very, very difficult season. Okay. Right. And we were a lot closer than people think, but we weren't winning. Well, then we go into the off season, and we're told uh, the program stinks. The coach is going to get fired. We had no allies. It was very, very difficult. And I, I didn't have a problem with that's the way the world works. So I wasn't like, I'm not getting support or anything. Like, I, I got it. I accepted it. The players in the locker room accepted it. And the best part about it, they took ownership. Well, going into the next year, everybody thought we were going to stink. So this would have been last year. and there was an internal confidence within our locker room about, okay, fellas, if we just play for each other and we play the right way, everybody's going to get what they want. Because at the end of the day, they want to play in front of sold out crowds. They want the individual accolades. They want to be ranked. They want, they want all those things. That, that doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make no. them selfish. So at the end of the day, we, we went into the season with, let's just play for each other, guys. And let's see where this all goes. 
Well, it was unbelievable. We started out in a non-conference last year, 12 and one, good, solid non-conference. And then we go into the league and we start off three and one. So we started play, making a little bit of noise. Well, we went on a five game losing streak. And so we ended up being what, three and three and six. Well, the sky was falling with all the external noise of the media, the fans, Twitter, social media, all those things, all that fake outrage that we all deal with. But internally, I remember going to the locker room and, and my older guys, Nate Mason and Jordan Murphy said, coach, relax, we got this. And it was a true belief that we had it. And we went on to win eight in a row and we didn't lose the whole month of February. So this year, I've continued to talk to them about, guys, you, you showed what the blueprint was. You played the right way last year. And Amir, you got all freshmen. Nate, you got first team all conference. Jordan Murphy got all conference. Reggie Lynch got defensive player of the year. You're nationally ranked. You're getting sold out across all because you played the right way. So you know the blueprint. And you know that when you deviate from the blueprint, all you do is make yourself look bad and you lose games. Um, so it's, as much as it was difficult to, you know, to lose, it was really, really beneficial for a lot of the guys in the locker room. One of your dad's and my favorite people in the world was Chuck Daly. And, you know, he used to have a saying, and, and it, you just reminded me of it, never trust happiness. <laughs> so, you know, and so like, uh, you know, you're 7-0 and now, and uh, like I'm watching Golden State, you know, play the other day, and I'm saying, God, these guys are so good, they can never lose. And then last night they sit out two guys, Durant and Curry, and they get beat by Sacramento, the worst team in the league. So, you know, you can never trust yourself. Now, here's the key. What happens finally at some point? If you do lose a game, how do you react to that? You know, I tell them all the time. I say, I say a couple things. I said, we talk a lot about human nature. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I read them over the summer was Pat, Pat Riley winner with it. And mm -hmm. we talked about the disease of me yep. and we really, really harp on human nature constantly. And one of the things that I tell these guys over and over again is, is the score will not dictate the way that we operate our program on a daily basis and understand that, you know, cause we've dealt with losing, we've dealt with winning. And if there's one thing that I think I'm pretty good at is I'm pretty even keel. Um, and I don't get too high and I don't get too low, um, when we win or lose and you got to do that. But I'll tell you what, when you lose in today's world, you cannot hide. Um, because of social media and because of, like I said before, the fake outrage of all people and what they do, like, you know, in, in, in 15 years ago, when you had a bad game, you know, you go back to your dorm, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in today's world, just the amount of influences and noise and people who have no idea who think they know because they have a Twitter handle and their voice can be heard. It's very, very dangerous. So, I constantly talk to them about that and educate them on what exactly it is, because there's a benefit of being a young head coach, because it is it is weird because I'm 35 and I'm going into my fifth year as being a Big Ten head coach. Like, it's crazy um, how lucky I've been. But I do understand just what it is that they're going through. So I'm able to certainly discuss it with them. Uh, and continue to communicate with them how to deal with those things. You know, as you just mentioned, uh, you're one year, less than one year older than my son. Uh, so you are a millennial. 
and your players yeah. are millennials, except for like Isaiah Washington's a Generation Z guy. You know, he's down the with the other guy. But what have you learned about those guys and the people around them? Sometimes the kids are great, but the people around them, the parents, the AA coach, all the people that they, the millennials that, you know, some of the things that we associate with those kids, what are some of the things that as a coach nowadays of a millennial young man or woman that you have to deal with? So the other day I was sitting in our, in our players lounge and I think the Maui classic was on and a couple of my players were sitting down and I remember, or I walked in, I said, you know what? I got a little time to kill. I'm just going to hang with them. Mm. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hear what they talk about. And it was unbelievable. I would say for 95% of the conversation, they talked about sneakers. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sitting there and I'm laughing saying, oh, my goodness. But then I take a step back and I go, what were my buddies and I talking about when we were sitting around in college? Mm. You know, so you've got to understand what's important to these guys. And you can't fight it. Like, and I'm 35. When I was in college. I was not showing people what I was doing at night. That That's not what I wanted people to know. It is a part of their culture. How they look, their swag, all those things is very, very important to millennials. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get them to understand to be careful with what they put on social media, to walk a fine balance of, okay, I understand you want to express yourself, whether it be with your hair your shoes, all those things. Like we want you to be comfortable with yourself. You're at your best when you're extremely comfortable. That's great. But also understand that people are watching. They're evaluating you. So how can you build your brand the right way? Um, so, you know, I think uh, I do a pretty decent job of not fighting them on what's important to them. Um, I get it. Like I want them to be themselves, be comfortable, but I got to get them to understand that in a world of, you know, with millennials, it's a very, very narcissistic culture. Yeah, that's um, good. And you got to get them to understand that if you play for the team, you're going to get those individual things that you care about in the end. So you and I, your dad, we all went to Catholic school growing up. And if I screwed up in school or they said I misbehaved, which was a very rare thing, Richard, I got, mm -hmm. I got smacked by that nun with a with a ruler or hit over the head with a book uh, or something like that. And then when I got home, I got smacked again by my mom or dad for acting up. Nowadays, if you're a teacher and you say that the kid messed up, they file a complaint against you because their kid has never made a mistake. You know, and I think that's one of the real things about young people today is their parents almost don't want to take the responsibility of telling them, like you're saying, play the right way or do the right thing. They're saying my kid never makes a mistake, and we both know that's not the case, and it doesn't help the young person grow. No, it, it doesn't, but it's counterproductive for us to sit around and complain about it. And yeah. it it is what it is. Like like to me, the the world that we live in now, because everybody has a voice. You know, it's like see, like years ago, certain people didn't have a voice. Well. You look at what just happened with the Tennessee football coaching search. Like, and again, I don't really know the ins and outs of the sure. whole deal, but I do know that the social media mob affected a coaching hire. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's the world we live in. Well, the biggest thing that I try to do with parents and is build trust and get them to understand that, listen, we all want the same thing. Like when they come to me about, you know, their kids, this and that, I, I point blank tell them, I understand that you care about your kids. Well, I care about my kids too. I got three kids under the age of six and I got to win. I got to win. So I'm doing everything possible. I want your son to succeed. And like most young people, they're not going to be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect. Uh, but it, you got to communicate with them. You got to build trust. Uh, I'm not a yeller and a screamer. I don't think that's necessarily productive right. um, with the younger uh, generation. I think we've really, really moved away from that. Uh, and I think that's fine. You know, and, and you can hold your guys accountable in other ways. But they really, really want to know why you're doing certain things. And you've got to be, be sure to explain it to them. So one of, the, one of the ways to build trust is what? By being truthful to the, both the player, let's say, or the parent in that case, correct? No doubt. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it, it, it's you've just got to – because parents are going to think – they're, they're going to think that – they're going to think about their son first and foremost – that does not make them bad parents. So that's the first oh, no, thing, nothing. you know, it does not make them bad parents. So there's this, there's this kind of this defense mechanism, like, oh, they only care about their kid. They do. And that's great. They've done a really, really good job of raising their kid the right way. But you got to get them to understand that it is a process. See, everybody's really, really impatient. Um, I tell them a lot of the time as parents, I say, you do understand your kid is really happy. <laughs> you know, now some may not be happy. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the days of ignoring parents, never speaking to them, those are over. You just got to be upfront and honest with them as much as you possibly can. You know, you said something earlier about, you know, your personality and the way that you like to coach. And I remember when you were uh, on Billy staff at Florida and I came to visit you guys and we did strength finder and, uh, and yours was, it sticks out with me to this day. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and I looked at it right away and I, knowing your dad so well, and I'm saying those aren't his strengths. And it reminded me so much of my daughter when she took strength finder, she went home and complained to her, her mother. And she said, I got the same strengths as dad. Like, oh God, you know, and it was, and it was hysterical. And yet I played in high school for UB Brown. Your dad coached with UB. And then when I worked with Chuck Daly, he was way more similar to myself. and I, But I remember you be saying to me, the first day I ever coached with him in, with the NBA and the Hawks, and he said, Brendan, do yourself a favor. Do not try to be me. Be yourself. It was so liberating. And I think your dad probably said the same thing to you. Be who you are. And that's when you're really going to step out. doesn't mean you don't copy things and do things. But personality-wise, you know, I, 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 wanted, I idolized. He was my high school coach. I idolized you be... But when he said to me, "Just be yourself," that was so good. Has have you have you found that in your, your getting your own coaching voice, so to speak? When did that ever come to you? You know what I mean? You know, the best thing that I did was worked for other guys. Mm. You know, I had three three years under my father. We went to a Final Four, went to two Elite Eights. We had unbelievable success. Sure. We had a lot of fun. Um, but the best thing I did was I went and worked for Billy Donovan. Yeah, and. I went down there kind of thinking, okay, the perception of Billy Donovan is that he is a mini Rick Pitino. Mm -hmm. You know, they're so similar. They do everything very similar. And 
I saw on a daily basis just how different they were. And I realized that that's not a bad thing. Like there's all, I always feel weird, you know, because when I talk to media, media, the media is obsessed with my dad, sure. comparison, et cetera. And to me, it's like, listen, we're very, very different. That does not mean that what his way is bad. He is 65 years old. I am 35 <laughs> years old. Um, he grew up differently than I did. You know, so all those things are fine. They're not negatives. But I realize the more and more I do this and the way that I coach, I get to get myself in the best frame of mind. Uh, that's why I don't yell a lot because I'm constantly trying to evaluate and assess the situation. When I yell, I kind of lose focus of what's going on. Um, you know, some other coaches can do that. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, like working for Billy for those two years, regardless of all the great things that I learned, I just saw a coach in Billy Donovan who was extremely successful, who took a lot of what he learned from my dad, put his own little spin on it, and was trying to just do it his way. Um, I think I think a lot of coaches make mistakes when they try to be, you know, the person that they worked for. Be be yourself. You know, be yourself doesn't mean that you can't do similar things or whatever. And if you have to adapt, adapt, you know, that that's the beauty of of our profession. Um, And I do think the beauty of younger coaches is we're really, really willing to evolve, you know, and Mm -hmm. and because we're just trying to get better every single day. And so um, if there if there's one thing that I've kind of learned, it's be yourself, get yourself to the most comfortable place mentally when you're coaching your team every single day and be very, very happy with that. You know, one of the thing I always say that parenting, uh, make, if you're a great parent, I think you have a chance to be a great coach. And, and I say that because I believe it's the same skill set. Uh, you know, you have to love your players unconditionally. You know, you have to be able to, you know, constantly reinforce that to them. And the guys that, don't I think really struggle you have three beautiful babies under six okay how does that life balance help you coaching well I'll say this um besides having a great wife you overachieved there by yeah thank you yeah two things I would say when you lose it's a very very lonely life Mm. and it's not that people are throwing rocks at you in public or anything uh, they maybe a couple of years ago they would have, but at the it, at the end of the day, when you lose, it's a very empty feeling. Like when you win, you get in fifty, sixty texts, friends, family, oh, you're the best, this and that. When you lose, you don't get anything. Doesn't mean that people aren't supporting you; they just probably want to give you your space. But you always go home to the people that truly matter and why you're doing it. Um, you know, so when I went through that tough season two years ago. I became a better father. I became a better husband because I'm sitting there going, okay, we're not succeeding from a wins and loss standpoint. I'm going to do my best to be the best father I can be. Like you can't, we're not taking that part away from me. Um, So it really, really made me a really good father and a good husband. Um, The other thing now that like my daughter, Ava, she gets older, you know, she's six and she's starting to become kind of a person, you know, and, and, I see her at times where she may be embarrassed or her self-esteem may drop a little bit like she's and that breaks my heart 
like like you want to see your kids happy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like my son Jack is three years old. You give him a you know a Hershey bar and he's happy. You know, it's not going to matter with him. But you want your kids happy, and you know they're at their best when they're happy. So I coach that way. You know, like 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 I'm constantly finding the way that I can get my guys in the right frame of mind to where they trust me that what we're doing is right. We've got their back. Um, this is why we're doing those things. And I just want to put them in a position to succeed. Um, and, and I think being a father, I see that, you know, I see that. And I'm not sure I would have seen that before. So the respect level that I try to treat my guys with uh, has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, now that I'm a father and I understand that. So so it's uh, it's definitely made me a better coach. That's fabulous stuff. Hey, tell me about last Saturday at the game against Alabama when you made, you know, made Avery take all those guys out to play five on three so you'd keep winning. No, but tell me. You know, it's, it's a, funny. Yeah. Um, the, it's weird because for 30 minutes we played great. Um, and we really, really saw so my message to my team uh, was this. We're going to we're going to ignore the last 10 minutes of the game mm, and we're going to focus on the normal basketball piece. We played great versus a very, very good team, a very well-coached team, and a talented team. Sure. Uh, then only the people that were there can understand exactly what happened. Sure. Um, because in the world that we live in today where there's this obsession with content, the media wants to write stories about things that they're not there for. Like our game was not on national TV. Right. Our game was on Facebook. So I always like when people want to be critical of our team or what we were doing, I sit there and I say, you were, you didn't watch the game. I don't believe you. Yeah. So it's funny. So we were up 15 or whatever when all of a sudden, so a, a fight breaks out. It wasn't really a fight. It was just kind of a pushing and shoving. And Alabama's team, the whole bench they goes on the off. court. Yeah, it was crazy. They all, they all went off. Now, I'd like to sit here and get on my high horse and say, my guys were disciplined. They didn't come on the court. Truth be told, their assistants were trying to do a good job. It just happened by their bench. But it was on um, the other end of the floor, right? Yeah. So we, we were we were lucky and fortunate in that. So their whole bench gets, um, you know, they get uh, kicked out. Well, then one of their kids has four fouls. He fouls out. So now we're five on four and just – I'm sitting there as a coach saying, okay, I don't want to embarrass these guys. I've got a lot of respect for Avery and their staff. They're a really good team. Let's just kind of get through this thing. Well, then like the next possession, Petty sprains his ankle. So now it's five on three and it's about a 13 point game, whatever. So I'm like, all right, we're running offense. And I'm like, well, what should we run? Well, my, the coaches, the coaches, objective on offense is get your guys a wide open shot well they were all wide open so this criticism that like we didn't know what we were doing like our guys were wide open it was just really really bizarre to be that open plus the environment in the gym it was just out of control the refs were ejecting people like the game just needed to end and then all of a sudden we missed a couple shots and then all of a sudden colin sexton comes down and he's making ridiculous shots, and it became like an eight-point game. We come down, we we milk the clock, we milk the clock, we miss a wide-open shot. Then Sexton, as talented as he is, makes another tough shot, and we're like, all right, here we go. I guess we're going to have to actually play this thing. But the whole thing was a little bit sensationalized. I understand why it's a cool story. Uh, but at the end of the day, 
we played really, really good for 30 minutes versus a terrific team. And anyone that tells me that, oh, you didn't do this, you yeah, didn't right. do that, I, I don't even listen to them because they have no idea what they're talking about with those things. So uh, all that fake outrage about it, I kind of ignore. Um, it was a bizarre, bizarre experience, though, uh, from both sides of it. And, you know, when the NCAA committee meets – uh, in March, you know, if you don't outright win the Big Ten tournament, uh, they will say, uh, there's no one going to say, well, they beat Alabama five on three. <laughs> They're just going to say they beat Alabama, who's an NCAA team, for sure. Uh, well, so, and, we, and, yeah. and we beat Alabama when the game was Exactly normal, right. We, we, we played very well and beat them. You know, we were up double digits. So as much as the media and all that wants to talk about it, when you take a step back and where we evaluate the game, we played damn good basketball. So I don't really worry about all the other nonsense of the whole thing. I mean, I, I, I'm sitting there saying, okay, where can we get better? But I also understand that we played really good. Yeah, no, and that, and that is exciting. And tomorrow you have a terrific game uh, in your Big Ten ACC matchup with Miami. Uh, how do you like the tournament uh, going against another conference early in the season? I think it's, you know, I think everybody is trying to figure out how we can improve um, the non-conference portion of college basketball. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of awesome games. Um, you know, I mean, we've been a part of at Providence College. That was a zoo, great environment, yep. a great game, nationally TV, national TV we won. The Alabama game, both yep. teams were terrific teams. Um, and obviously we were fortunate to win. But I think the more home-and-homes conferences force coaches to do are better for everybody. You know, because I know, I know when we play Miami, it's going to be a great environment. Miami's really good, well coached. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really, really good thing for us to play. So the more we can do that, it's good for college basketball. Playing Alabama on a neutral site on Facebook Live, that's not good for anybody. <laughs> as much as I'm happy that we won the game, that's not good for all of our brands. Yeah, especially when you have two fabulous teams and two great conferences. Tell me about. Uh, you know, and I got a little peek, but tell tell our listeners that, you know, don't know, tell us about what's going to happen in the next month or so with your facilities at Minnesota. It's unbelievable. You know, I, I'm very, very happy here. I like, I like Minnesota a lot. I've got a great AD. Um, but this place, you know, my AD just got here and I, I laugh to him. I say, you know, you don't understand <laughs> what we have now. It was not what we had. And I, when I got the job, I was 30 years old and very, very grateful to be a head coach at this level. I knew I was lucky. I was appreciative. But we had a lot of things that we needed to do. Um, our facilities were really, really bad. I'll tell you a funny story. Last year, um, we were watching the Maryland-Michigan State game. If Maryland won, so this is at the end of the season, we would, we would have secured a top four seed. You know, a team that had won eight games a year before to do that was really, really an accomplishment for sure. our guys. So we're watching the game and we're watching it in our locker room and our kind of our makeshift locker room that was so embarrassing. And I remember we're sitting there and the ceiling is like seven feet high and the big guys are hitting their heads on it. And there's only one shower for a group of 15 guys. But I remember sitting there watching it and not one guy ever complained. Uh, they never said a word about it. It wasn't really what mattered to them. And we're celebrating because I think Maryland hit a buzzer beater to beat Michigan State. And my SID was in there and he filmed it. 
And he's like, can I put it on Twitter? And I'm like, I don't know if I want recruits to see this locker room. Um, but I knew that we were having the facility built. So I'm like, all right, you can do it because it's not going to matter now because we're having a $170 million facility being built. Right. Well, um, there was a little bit of as, as you know, not conducive to succeeding at the highest level as it was. It was a bit of our identity. We were a low maintenance group. All we cared about was winning. And there's going to be an adjustment because we're moving in in January to an athlete's village that's 170 million. It's got a leadership center that develops these guys for life after basketball. That's 25 million for the Land Lakes Leadership Center. The entrance, the entrance is filled with LED screens that you can put highlights of your game. You walk into a, you know, a student athlete cafeteria where all the student athletes can eat all their meals. They can mingle with each other. It overlooks a big courtyard, uh, and then you walk up one flight of stairs. And you see our beautiful brand new practice facility. Um, you know, so we're taking the next step. And that's really, really exciting. So fortunately, we've been able to have success without that. And I think this is really, really going to help us just kind of continue to move forward. Um, you know, so we're lucky. Uh, it took a lot of hard work from a lot of people to raise money. Um, you know, and there, it, I'm proud of our guys for just not worrying about that and now kind of being able to get into that without really concerning themselves with it. So it's really exciting for our program. I'm uh, I've, I've been a big fan the last few years and I believe in the synergy of having a family atmosphere and, and, uh, and programs. Uh, and you saw it at Florida where you have football pulling for basketball, basketball for football, et cetera. And people say, you know, you can't win if you have a good football program at a school, you know, and, and you have a very unique person that came on board last year. Tell us about PJ Fleck. Well, I will say this. I, I think about 10 years ago or so, 15 years ago, there was this jealousy amongst football coaches and basketball coaches. And I, I think like they, you know, oh, we want to be a basketball school, not a football yeah, school. Right. We want to be a football school, not a basketball school. And the great thing now that that has not existed. Like, I, I think everybody knows that we all want football to be good. You know, if football is good, it helps us all, you know, because we're bringing recruits on campus in the fall. Sure. So we all want a great environment at the football games. Um, we understand that the more revenue they bring in for every sport, it benefits. Um, I've been fortunate to get to know PJ, you know, like I think from the outside, when you, you, you kind of read about him, you're like, oh, what's this guy all about? Um, but you don't really know him because you don't you're just reading about it. Well, he moved into my neighborhood. Um, and I didn't really get to know him much when he came in because I was in the middle of my Big Ten season, but I really got to know him over the summer. I mean, him and his wife, Heather, um, and my wife, Jill, we once, twice a week would hang out, you know, by the fire, have a glass of wine. And it was so therapeutic for both of us to just talk about what we're going through. Um, because good. I said it before, I mean, it is a lonely existence being a head coach, you know, just because. People think they know, but they really don't know. It, it's a lonely existence being a coach's wife, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like, if my wife can have somebody to talk to about that, uh, it's great as well. So, we've become really, really good friends. Um, we we talk all the time and just about what we're going through, you know. Like, PJ had a tough year this year. People are on him. Like, I dealt with that two years ago, and I and I just remind him all the time of. The articles that were written about me and the things that were said about me. Mm -hmm. um, so that that kind of 
I always I always say to our staff, you know, it's from that movie Patton, right? That old movie, All Glory is Fleeting, kind of like what you said with Chuck Daly, never trust happiness. Like this thing can change. So appreciate the good. Understand that it's never quite as bad as you think it is. And it's never quite as good as you think it is. Um, and, and I think that PJ, what I really like about him is he has a great belief in what he is doing and how he's going to run his program and how once he gets that culture right and he gets the talent right, the thing is going to take off. So I'm excited to see it all unfold. Hey, uh, uh, on social media, as I follow you every day, uh, explain to me and to our listeners, hashtag ski you ma. Well, it's sky you ma. Sky you ma. I'm from Jersey. uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a saying it's a, it's an old tradition, uh, with Minnesota. And it, it, it was like this old battle cry uh-huh. back in the old days, um, kind of about Minnesota. And it's got a cool kind of sky you ma thing that I, I think it was like an old rugby coach used to say. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it's stuck. I mean, it was, uh, I think it's been since like the late 1800s. And I do think there's kind of a push with our marketing people uh, to, to use it more. And I like it. I think it's pretty Yeah. Cool. I just so, wanted um, to know what it was. I'm saying it to everyone, but I don't know what the hell it means, but I'm not really <laughs> sure what the hell it means either, to be quite honest with you, but we're going to go with it and we're right. going to go hard with it. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. No, so we'll right. With it. Well, Hey Richard, thank you as always. Uh, I, I love talking to you because I learn every time I talk to you and I appreciate you sharing. And I know the people that we have that, uh, listen every Wednesday to our, uh, coaching you podcasts are really going to enjoy this. So, uh, Best of luck this season. Really rooting for you and uh, continued success. Say hello to your guys for me. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. I knew you'd really enjoy listening to Richard. He's uh, one of the people that I really enjoy talking to in our profession. I learn from him every time I'm around him, and I hope you did the same. Uh, next week uh, on next Wednesday's podcast, or even even before that, you're going to have a, hear a special announcement from coaching you about some things that we have going for this year. So make sure you listen or watch on Twitter at coaching underscore you or coaching you live.com. Till next week, the coach, Brendan, sir. Brendan, sir.